All right, we're gonna be in Acts 23. If you don't know, we are traveling through the book of Acts. We're rapidly approaching the end. Paul now has been arrested. He's now going to court. And he's gonna say something in his opening dialogue in court that to me is interesting. And maybe here's a way to set the stage for it. Most of you know that I own a 1966 Volkswagen bus. Bought it out of a field in Williams. It had a hole in the side and it had a stovepipe coming out of it when I bought it. Very inventive way to solve the heater problem in a Volkswagen. Let's have a going fire in our Volkswagen. Good idea, great idea. So bought it that way, fixed it up. Didn't do anything to the motor though. And the motor was tired. Supposed to have 36 horsepower, had less because one cylinder didn't work. So just slow. I would drive and it'd be like, peace, bro, peace. I'm at, I'm at Shalom right now. And everyone behind me was not. I hate Volkswagens. So my pattern was to drive it during the summers and put it away in the winter. Well, it started to do this thing to me where the engine oil light started to come on and I would stop and I would get out and I'd check the engine oil and it'd be fine. And then I would go drive more to be okay. And then all of a sudden it'd start doing it again. And it kept doing this and doing this and doing this when there was plenty of oil in it. So guess what I did? I unplugged the engine oil light, right? Cause it's harder to change the little light bulb than it is an engine. It's just a rubber band, it's easy. So I unplug it, right? I put it away one winter. Easter comes, I, I pull it out, it's a Wednesday night, it's right before Easter, I pull it out and check the oil, check everything, runs great. Okay, awesome. Drive down that Wednesday night to church, turn around, I'm driving home, I almost make it home and all of a sudden, the most horrific noise I've ever heard comes out of that motor and I stop. So I get out and I open the back, which is what you're supposed to do, right? And you just kind of look at it like, hmm, okay, there it is. I thought I should check the oil, no oil. It had dropped, whatever, three quarts of oil from the church to the four miles, almost to my house. And I didn't know it dropped all that oil because I had unplugged the light, okay? That little light, an idiot light on a Volkswagen, here's what it is. It's like your conscience. A conscience is it's supposed to tell you when you're running out of oil and you're headed for disaster. That's what it's supposed to do. But a conscience we'll find out today doesn't always work right. Sometimes it makes mistakes and those mistakes can be costly, okay? So in Acts 23, turn there if you would, look at what Paul says, he's in court, he's under the oath, you know, tell the truth, nothing but the truth, all that kind of stuff. He, he's got that oath and look how he begins talking. Acts 23, verse one. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. You can look at chapter 24, verse 16. He essentially says the same thing again in court. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, if you know Paul's life, you should be like, what? 
You have a clear conscience on your life? What about Acts chapter seven, when you oversaw the murder of Stephen? You're okay with that? Or Acts chapter nine, when you were grabbing men, women, and children and dragging them into prison for following Jesus. You have a clear conscience on that? What are you saying, Paul? How's that possible? Right? So what's the deal with the conscience? Let me give you one other illustration. So if you're my age, you remember in the 1990s, NASA had this drive to see if there's life on Mars. So it was called the Mars Surveyor Project. And they had this satellite that it was a billion dollar satellite. And it was supposed to land on Mars and sample and send back the data. So they get this billion dollar satellite to Mars and they go to land it on Mars. And all of a sudden that satellite takes off and makes a beeline for the sun and commits suicide. Maybe it's seen a Martian or something. I am not landing there. So they're like, what happened? Here's what happened. One group of scientists, engineers were using the metric system. The other group of scientists, engineers were using the English system. Millimeters versus inches. So when they inputted the information in inches, it was looking at millimeters and it just took off too much power. That's the conscience. The conscience doesn't set the standard. It's like the satellite. It's just waiting for input into it. And if the input is wrong, look out. You'll go off course and you'll destroy yourself. That's the conscience, okay? And so I'm convinced that there is a fight collectively for the Christian conscience today. That we have aligned ourselves with groups and ideas and things that just a generation ago, we are diametrically opposed to. But something's happened because our consciences are moving because of what's being inputted into them. And I could go off on that. I don't want to. What I want to try to do is this. I think for the believer, there are three modes of conscience, of a, of a conscience. And these three modes have ramifications to them and a theology that drives them. And they're either going to bring you life and it abundantly, or they're gonna make your motor blow up or send you launching into the sun, okay? So that's my goal. I'll try to get to it as quick as possible. Conscience type number one is what I'll call the overactive conscience. It's like my engine oil light. It's turning on when there's no problem, right? So there are believers and here's what happens to this believer. It is a believer that's always afraid they're sinning. They have an overactive conscience. They'll come to me and wanna meet with me and they'll say, Matt, I think I committed the unforgivable sin. I think I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I don't think I'm going to heaven anymore. I think I've lost my salvation. It's an overactive conscience. They're always worried about sin, 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 right? If that's you, you're absolutely normal. Here's what I mean. So over and over, I will go back to Genesis one and two and three, because I am convinced that those three chapters give to you and me the makeup of humanity. That if you wanna know why we act the way we act, our psychology, just read Genesis one, two, and three, that they give to you and me our psychology. This is why you act the way you act. 
I call it the echo of Eden, right? In the garden, here's what you had. You had Adam and Eve being told by God, eat these plants, don't eat this plant and live. It's called the covenant of works. If you do these things right, then life is gonna work out brilliantly for you. That is the default setting of every human conscience. It's our default setting that if we just do these things right, life's gonna work brilliantly. We all have that in us. If, if I just could do this, if I could wake up earlier, if I could study harder, if I was more productive, if I was kinder, if I was more loving, whatever it is, we all have these rules. If I just did that more, life would be brilliant and perfect. It's called the covenant of works. It's in all of us. The only problem with that is this. We all know this. We should be more obedient than we actually are. We should be kinder than we are. We should be more generous than we are. We should work harder than we do. We should spend less time on social media than we do. We all have that in us. We should be more obedient than we could possibly be. Covenant of works, overactive conscience. It's in you and me, it's in all of us, right? So here's maybe the best example I have of it. Remember Schindler's List? Guy that saves like over 1,200 Jews. How does that movie end? He's looking at his watch and he's saying, I could have saved one more. I could have saved one more. Not, bro, you are awesome, man. You saved 1,200 Jews. If every other person did what you did, there'd be no Holocaust. No, not that. It's, I could have done more. That's the conscience. The conscience will say this to you and me. It, it, will, it will do this. It will say, okay, you are kind or you are giving, but what about your brother? You failed him. The conscience will check our record and it'll find the one area that we failed at and it will smash us with that over and over and over again because it's in us, Echo of Eden, to be perfect. It's in us. And when we live with that, man, it just, it, it kills us. It kills us. And the theology behind it is this. God is harsh. God is a taskmaster. God expects perfection. That's the theology. And when you have a theology that God is this taskmaster who's a perfectionist, what that does to your conscience is it makes it so overactive. You're always thinking about sin and not about your salvation or Jesus. And what I found with people like this is they never experience joy. There's a lack of joy in their life. Instead, it's almost a neurotic worrying that causes this anxiety or every once in a while pride when they think they're killing it but it's a very short time for pride and then they fail again. So that's number one, overactive conscience, fed into by an understanding that God is this harsh taskmaster. Number two conscience is an unplugged conscience. So people can have that default setting in them and they can live life long enough. They're like, forget it. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm unplugging it. And now I'm gonna do whatever I want. Whatever feels good, I'm gonna do it. And what happens to that person is this, they get, I call it just being set adrift. They get set adrift. There's nothing solid anymore. There's nothing that you can point to and say, this is right and this is wrong. It's just, hey, that's right for you, great. Or that's wrong for you, oh, that's great. They're set adrift. And it's like this. So growing up, there was one like teen show. Now there's millions of them. There was one teen show and it was called Beverly Hills, 
90210. Remember that? Who watched that? Good. Most of you were reading your Bible and praying. Thank you. I love that. That's you guys. Okay. So there was a scene, if you remember that, it caused a lot of controversy because Tori Spelling, her lead character, had this boyfriend and she was trying to decide if she should have sex with her boyfriend. So she goes to talk to her priest and she goes and she meets with her priest and she's asking him, should I have sex with my boyfriend? She's a 17 year old junior, right? Should I have sex with my boyfriend? And the priest, this is what the priest says. The priest says, do whatever your heart tells you to do. And know this, that no matter what you choose to do, God will always love you. And they hug. Oh, thank you. That's, so, that's such good information. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I wish you had said anything. I mean, God will love me if I do. Like if I stabbed you right now, God would still love me. That's okay. The serial killer who has a little voice in his mind telling him to go kill people. God's okay with him too. Because then the priest would have had to do his job, which is actually their standards, right? That's the unplugged conscience. That's where we're at today. I read this great article in the Atlantic this week. It was by a school teacher. And he's reflecting on his, his time as a school teacher. And he said this, the US schools now, we no longer teach that character and morals are part of a successful life. Now what we teach is, hey, get this kind of grade, get this SAT score, get this kind of degree, and you'll be successful. That we've taken out morals and character as part of a successful life. So he does this test with his students all the time. And they're seniors in, in high school. He'll say this, if one of your friends committed some kind of immoral act and somebody got hurt, would you turn them in? Not one of his students has ever said, yeah, I'd turn them in. No. Why? Because they have a different input into their moral compass. It's very different, right? Like morality always changes, doesn't it? Depending on where you're at or who you're with. So I read this commentary and I thought it was really good. And the, the author had read an article in, the, in Time Magazine about a mafia hitman. And this mafia hitman had been known to kill like hundreds of people. This is his list. It was insane how many people he'd killed. And so they're interviewing him and asking him, like, hey, what's the deal with that? And he had killed two of his best friends. And he recounted one of the times he had to kill one of his best friends the day before he was doing the hit. The friend said, hey, man, I got to talk to you. Okay, let's go grab lunch. They sit down at lunch and the friend's like, man, I think something's going down. I can feel, I can feel like something's going down right now. And this guy, to his best friend, don't worry, I'll protect you. Don't worry, I'll make sure that nothing happens to you. Don't worry, I got this all the while knowing tomorrow I'm going to put a bullet in your head. And then he goes on to say, and this is what fascinated me. He goes on to say this. Oh, yeah, we'd kill like that. But listen, we would never murder for money because that would be greed. That's his conscience right there. Over here, it's just business. And this is just business, man. If I got to kill my best friend, nobody, that's business. But oh, my conscience would kill me if someone paid me to murder somebody. Well, that's exactly what they're doing, right? What had happened to his conscience? It got twisted it become different. Or like my wife and I saw this. Um, we do foster care and sometimes you go to court and we're in court and this mom 
is facing the kind of charges against her that was leading to the removal of her kids. So it was like this packet and they had been handed out to everybody in there. So I've got this packet, and I'm like reading through it. It's just like page after page after page after page. Your heart just breaks like, oh my goodness. And so she has uh, some time to look it over. And the judge says, do you have any objections to what's written there? She goes, oh yeah. Page 12, paragraph three. It says that I'm an intravenous drug user. She goes, I have eaten meth. I have smoked meth. I have snorted meth, but I have never injected meth. I'm not one of those intravenous drug users. Yeah, that's I almost chuckled. I'm like, oh my goodness. What's that? That's our morality. That's our conscience. I'm still one of the good drug users. I'm not a bad drug user. I'm a good drug user, right? Why? Because the conscience, once it becomes unmoored, just drifts. It drifts. I think if you really think about where we're at today, it seems like that. And the theology behind that is this. God's a happy God. God's just a happy God. Like C.S. Lewis said, God's plan for the world is that a good time was had by all. Happy God. That God doesn't say no to you and me. God doesn't set a standard. God doesn't say don't. God doesn't do those things. That's what leads to a conscience that becomes unplugged and allows you to do whatever you want. Listen, that's not God. God says no. God says don't. God says sin. That's what God does. That other God is your assistant on your path to self-actualization or whatever. That's what it is. It's not God though, okay? And, and, and here's what happens to a person like that. They never have a close relationship with God. They always feel distant from him. An overactive conscience, no joy. An unplugged conscience, no relationship. Because relationship is always a pairing of confrontation and care. Right, parents? It's always a pairing of, I'm, I'm gonna confront you in this behavior because I care for you, right? And parents that don't confront their kids and won't say no to their kids, what do their kids grow up to be like? Something you find in your front yard that you put in the trash can and then they release them on the world. And then we have to deal with the ramifications and the mess that they make, Right? And it's not love, that's sentiment. That's all it is. It's not love. Love is confrontation and care, the pairing of those. And if you won't let God confront you, you won't have a relationship with him. And people that tell me they feel distant from God, one of the first things I go to is that right there. Can God say no to you? And you can go into the psychology if you want, but psychology has shown this. But I had a young lady come to me a while back and it, it, she just nailed it. She said, she's like 22 year, years old. She's like, I, I gotta tell you for the first time in my life, yesterday, I felt like God was my dad. I said, tell me about that. She said, I grew up with a dad that never said no to me. It was just, yes, 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 yes. Money, wealthy, buy cars, whatever. It's just, yes, 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 yes. But I never had a relationship with him because he didn't ever confront me. It was just, yes, yes, yes. And she said, so I'm living my own and, and, I'm, uh, and I'm in an argument with God about money. And it was like, it had been ongoing for weeks and weeks and weeks. And she said yesterday, and she gave me the whole details of it. He just said no to me. And she started crying. She said, it's the closest I've ever felt to God. Finally, someone cares enough to say no to me. No, don't. That will hurt you. Don't live that way anymore. Right? So you got the overactive conscience. It's the default sin of humanity. Covenant of works. And you will not have joy ever. You have the 
unplugged conscience. You're just adrift. It's feelings, it's whatever goes, but you'll never have a relationship with God. And the last one is what I call a flourishing conscience. And a flourishing conscience is the conscience that tells you when your oil is low, when you're headed for disaster and it's working correctly. And let me read you one verse that Paul writes. And I think he capsulizes what I'm trying to say. It's 1 Corinthians chapter four. Listen to this. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Paul says, number one, I'm not letting culture judge me. I'm not letting it judge me anymore. I'm not letting the outside things say, hey, this is right or this is wrong. Number two, I don't even judge myself. I don't let my echo of Eden Adam and Eve, covenant of work, that conscience judge me anymore. Instead, he says, lastly, is the Lord who judges me. I let God be the standard, period. Not culture, not my feelings. God's the standard. And for Paul, God was not harsh. God was not happy. God was holy. And if you wanna know what holiness means, we say God's holy all the time, but very few people actually know what that means. It's derived from the Old Testament. And the word actually means distinct, different, in a category of his own. That's what holy means, set apart. That there's nothing like God. God creates, we're creator. God is eternal, we're not. God is holy, he's different. And because of Paul's understanding of the holiness of God, it freed him from the overactive conscience and the unplugged conscience to a flourishing conscience, God judges me. What you listen to me, what you believe about God really matters. As a Christian, it's the core thing you have to get, your theology. So I will quickly show you how Jesus, I think makes this plain. So Jesus gives this parable, it's Matthew 25. I'll just summarize it. It's a master who has three servants, And he gives one servant five talents. A talent is a bag of gold, five bags of gold. Gives another servant, two bags of gold. Gives a third servant, one bag of gold. They go out, he leaves, gone for a long time. The guy with five bags of gold uses it, invests it, whatever, flips houses. I don't know what he does. He makes five more bags of gold. He's got 10 bags of gold. The guy with two bags of gold does the same thing. He makes four bags. He's got four bags. The guy with one bag of gold, what does he do with his? Digs a hole and buries it, right? Now now listen to what Jesus says, drove that behavior. So verse 20, he that had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more. Master, you gave me five talents. I've made five more. His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. You did well, more responsibility and joy. The heart of the human heart, the very core of us, we want joy and we want responsibility. God says, I'm giving that to you. I'm gonna make your heart 
sing, right? Guy with two talents, same thing. He came forward, had made two more. His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. More responsibility, joy. But the third guy, he who had received one talent came forward saying, master, I knew you. I knew you. This is my opinion of you. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent. And here you have what is yours. But the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, be given and he who has an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant out into outer darkness in the place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The two, joy, more responsibility. The one, darkness, no relationship, no joy. Hmm. The two, they looked at the master and they said, he's good and generous. Why would they say that? He gave me five bags of gold, (laughs) right? He is good and generous. Wow. The one hard man. I knew you to be hard. And the result is fear. What was the truth about the master? Who gives away bags of gold? Anyone giving away bags of gold? Because I will line right up. Man, give me five bags of gold. I'd love that. No, the master's good and generous. My goodness. He lets them keep it, right? Give the guy who has 10, he didn't take any back. Give the guy who has 10, one more. That's what you call the ultimate profit sharing, right? Keep it all, man. Keep the money I invested and the money you made. How good and how generous is he? He's not a control freak. He's not like, hey, make sure you do this with the money. Make sure you give me this amount back. No, freedom. Go do with it what you think you should do with it. Man, he is a good, generous Master, but the one that believed the master was harsh, fear, and he was paralyzed and ends up in outer darkness, separated from God. What do you believe about God? Is he harsh, reaping where he does not sow? Or is he good and generous? Because what you believe will drive how you live. Do you know that? What you, are live, what you believe will be what you are living. It's a truth of life. When the three-year-olds get out of their class, go up to a three-year-old and say this to him. Hey, you are a fast runner. What will that three-year-old do? Run, why? Because he believes you. I am fast, man, watch me run. Matt, I'm not three years old. Yeah, but you act like it, <laughs> right? Read some study that tells, hey, if you will do crossword puzzles, you won't get Alzheimer's disease. Guess what you're doing? Man, you're finding a crossword puzzle, yeah, right? Some celebrity says, rub this root all over your face and you'll have baby skin. 
What are you doing at the growers market? Do you have this root here? Right? The only difference between us and kids is our stuff is a lot more expensive. It costs money. But what we believe, we will live. That's why one of my primary jobs as a Bible teacher is to keep telling you about the holiness of God, that he is so different than us. He's not like us. It's not the covenant of works. It's not fairness, right? We, we want fairness because we're still stuck in Genesis 1 and 2. God's not fair. The Bible says this. It's one of my favorite passages. It's Isaiah 30, verse 18. It says, it's God's glory to be merciful to us. What brings God glory? To give you mercy. He's so graceful. He's so kind. He's so different than us. He's so beautiful. Because when you believe in a God that's beautiful and holy and kind and loving, when you finally believe in that kind of a God, you'll be living a different kind of life, one of joy and responsibility. Your conscience just gets cleaned up. I wanna be with him. Oh, I love him. I wanna be like him. Jesus is so different than me and so right. I just wanna be like him. That's what happens to you. And the natural transformation of the human heart is you have a flourishing conscience that keeps you where God wants you to be. And it's brilliant and beautiful. What kind of God do you believe in? Do you believe in Jesus? The one that loved you so much, that he gave his life for you. The one that promises you this, if you'll follow me, I'll lead you to green pastures and still waters. The one that says, if you'll use what I've given to you, I'll give you more. I'll give you my joy. You'll, you'll reign with me forever. Do you believe in that kind of a God? Because when you do, oh, your conscience is clean. It directs you. It saves you. It transforms you. That's what I want for you guys. Believe in a good and generous God. Because when you do, your conscience gets clean. That's why Paul says what he says. I don't let culture tell me what to do. I don't even let myself tell me what to do because I'm still covenant of works guy. I let God tell me what to do. And I get joy and responsibility. And so today, maybe you have been running from a harsh God and you've lived in fear, thinking God's gonna smash you. And you've taken the gifts he's given you and you've hidden them and you're not using them. And you got no responsibility, you got no joy, you got no relationship. Jesus would say to you today, come to me, all who are weary, come, all who are broken, come, all who are blind, and I'll give you life. And we make that offer every Sunday outside. And we do it through baptism because in the book of Acts, the book we're studying right now, over and over it says this, repent and be baptized. Water doesn't save you, Jesus saves you. And Jesus would say to you today, I can save you. I can save you from yourself and I can save you from a culture that has gone so adrift, it doesn't even know what joy is anymore. I can save you, come to me. So we make that offer. If you're here, you need prayer. I'll be down here. Leadership will be down here. Titus, two ladies will be down here. We'd love to pray for you. Maybe you feel adrift. Maybe you have that overactive conscience that's in all of us and you don't know how to stop it and it's making you neurotic. And you just need somebody to say, Hey, 
Jesus loves you. You know, there's a power in saying that to somebody. Laying your hands on somebody, just simply saying, your sins are forgiven and Jesus loves you. That's happened to me one time, I'll never forget it. It's like God's spirit came into me and I knew from that moment forward, I'm forgiven and Jesus loves me. And it came through somebody. Because sometimes you need somebody just to tell you that. You're forgiven and Jesus loves you. So come down and get prayer. If you're doing well, know this about Jesus. He is good and he is generous and he is holy. He's so different than us and so brilliant. You wanna be like him. So Father, this day, we thank you for the unspeakable gift of your son. We thank you that you are holy. You're other than us. We thank you that you're not a harsh God, not a happy-go-lucky God, that you're a holy God that's good and that's generous and will both confront us and care for us because your desire is the best for us, that you want us to be able, capable to rule and to reign with you for eternity. So I ask this day, Lord, for any in here who has a, have an incorrect understanding of you. I pray that the picture your spirit paints for them today would be one of mercy and grace and love and long suffering and meekness and temperance. And that they would see you as you are and our hearts would leap and our consciences would be clean. And we like Paul would say, oh, we're not taking direction and judgment from the world or from ourselves, but from you. So go with us, we ask. We pray this in your name, amen. God bless you guys.